Good morning, church. Our verse today is going to be in Mark 11 through 25. And it says, as he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple, and when he looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written, my house should be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And wherever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. That is our verse for today. Well, if you want to make it in advertising, you're going to need a great slogan. Slogans are short, pithy sayings that capture a big idea in as few words as possible. Let's take, for instance, Nike's iconic Just Do It ad campaign that was launched in 1988. Those three little words spoke directly to a deep-seated angst within the American consumer. You see, everyone wants to get in shape, or perhaps everyone knows they need to get in shape, but... And then come the excuses. I don't have the energy. I don't have the time. I have to work. I don't have the money. What about the kids? Now you fill in your particular excuse for why exercise never seems to happen. And what it tells us is that what we all need is for someone that has more strength and more determination of will to come along and to say to us, just do it. And in 1988, Nike stepped in to fill that role by showing us advertisements of ordinary men and ordinary women 
just like us, running through parks or on trails or up steps. Men and women no different from us. Men and women who could be us if only we would just strap on a pair of Nikes and just do it. And on the strength of this Just Do It ad campaign from 1988 to 1998, Nike increased its share of the North American sneaker market from 18% to 43% and went from $877 million to $9.2 billion in worldwide sales. That's the power of a slogan. But while slogans make for great marketing, they make for terrible theology. And the reason is, is that big theological ideas cannot be captured in few words without falling into error on one side or the other. Good theology is dependent upon nuance and the careful definition of words in order to express the truth. But slogans care nothing for nuance, they care nothing for the definition of words, and they care nothing for truth, for that matter. They simply want to tap into the felt needs of the consumer and peddle their product. Case in point, take the oft-repeated slogan, it's not about religion, it's about a relationship. Now, I contend that that is an unhelpful theological statement and that it is, in fact, potentially dangerous. I know what people mean when they say it's not about religion, it's about a relationship. And to a certain extent, I agree with them. It is possible to be religious without being in a relationship with Jesus. And that's a very real danger that we need to warn ourselves and others against. But the problem with that statement is that it expresses a false dichotomy. In other words, it pits two ideas against one another that are not actually opposite in nature. You see, while it is possible to be religious without being in a relationship with Jesus, it is not possible to be in a relationship with Jesus without being religious. And if someone is religious without being in a relationship with Jesus, their religion is simply a false religion. It's hypocritical externalism. But make no mistake, the Christian faith is a religion. So writes Kevin DeYoung, quote, Jesus was a religious Jew. He went to services at the synagogue. He observed Jewish holy days. He did not come to abolish the law or the prophets, but to fulfill them, Matthew 5, 17. He founded the church, Matthew 16, 18. He established church discipline, Matthew 18, 15 to 20. He instituted a ritual meal, Matthew 26, 26 to 28. He told his disciples to baptize people and to teach others to obey everything he commanded, Matthew 28, 19 through 20. He insisted that people believe in him and believe certain things about him, John 3, 16 to 18 and 8, 24. 
In other words, if religion is characterized by doctrine, commands, rituals, and structure, then Jesus is not your go-to guy for hating religion. End quote. In 2012, Jefferson Bethke, who is a Seattle-based Christian writer and speaker, produced a spoken word video which he uploaded to YouTube, which last time I checked had some 33 million views, entitled, Why I Hate Religion But Love Jesus. The video immediately went viral because it tapped into something that especially millennials, that is people of my generation and a little bit younger, were feeling. In it, Bethke attacks the self-righteous, hypocritical religion of the Pharisees, both ancient and modern. And in this video, there's a lot to like. He says a lot of things that are true. For instance, in the third verse he says, Religion might preach grace, but another thing they practice. They tend to ridicule God's people. They did it to John the Baptist. They can't fix their problems, so they just try to mask it, not realizing religions like spraying perfume on a casket. See, the problem with religion is it never gets to the core. It's just behavior modification, just a long list of chores. It says, let's dress up the outside, make it look nice and neat, but it's funny, that's what they used to do to mummies while the corpse rots underneath. Listen, I've got no qualms with that verse. In fact, that verse sounds a lot like Matthew 23, in which Jesus stands up and pronounces his woes upon the Pharisees and their false religion. He castigated them in that that chapter for being whitewashed tombs that outwardly appear beautiful, but inwardly are full of dead men's bones. No, my problem arises from the fact that throughout this poem, Bethke carelessly conflates false religion with just simply religion, just thus giving the impression that all religion is bad and that Jesus is opposed to all things religious. What if I told you Jesus came to abolish religion, he begins. I mean, if religion is so great, why has it started so many wars, he asks in another verse, as if religion were the only cause of war and as if every form of the Christian faith were complicit in the Crusades. But perhaps the clearest expression of this error is found in his sixth verse. Now back to the point. One thing is vital to mention. How Jesus and religion are on opposite spectrums. See, one's the work of God, while one's a man-made invention. One is the cure, but the other's the infection. See, because religion says do, Jesus says done. Religion says slave, but Jesus says son. Religion puts you in bondage while Jesus makes you free. Religion makes you blind, but Jesus makes you see. Now you get the point. Now again, I would have no qualm with this poem if Bethke had differentiated between false religion, the false religion of the Pharisees, the hypocrites, the self-righteous, and the true religion of Christ. But he didn't. And neither do many people today. So Kevin DeYoung responded to Bethke and to the prevailing mood of our generation, which this video captured, 
in an article that he wrote on the Gospel Coalition website entitled, Does Jesus Hate Religion? Kinda, Sorta, Not Really. In it, DeYoung wrote, The argument, and most poems are arguing for something, rests on the sharp distinction between religion on the one side and Jesus on the other. Whether this argument is fair depends on your definition of religion. Bethke sees religion as a man-made attempt to earn God's favor. Religion equals self-righteousness, moral preening, and hypocrisy. Religion is all law and no gospel. Well, if that's religion, then Jesus is certainly against it. But that's not what religion is. We can say that's what it has become for some people or what we understand it to be, but words still matter and we shouldn't just define them however we want. Jesus hates religion communicates something that Jesus hates self-righteousness doesn't. To say that Jesus hates pride and hypocrisy is old news. But to say he hates religion, now that has a kick to it. People hear religion and they think of rules and rituals and dogma, pastors, priests, institutions. People love Oprah and the shack and spiritual but not religious bumper stickers because the mood of our country is one that wants God without the strictures that come with traditional Christianity. We love the Jesus that hates religion. The only problem is he didn't. Now, the reason why I begin this morning's sermon in this way is because today's passage could be and has been the poster child for this Jesus hates religion movement. I mean, Jesus walks into the supreme religious institution of his day, that is the Jerusalem temple, and he starts throwing tables around and overturning chairs. I mean, surely that means that Jesus intended to tear down all the religious structures and create an amorphous movement devoid of rules and regulations Absent doctrine and dogma, right? Well, wrong. The point of this morning's text is not that Jesus hates religion or that Jesus hates organized religion. I mean, what's the alternative to that? Disorganized religion? Or that he hates institutional religion. Rather, the point of this morning's text is that Jesus hates false religion. That is a religion that is merely external and does not go to the heart. A religion that does not bear fruit. It is not all religion that draws Jesus' ire and wrath. It is false, fruitless religion that invites his curse and makes him want to fashion a whip out of cords and to drive it out of his temple. So let's take heed to this text this morning, lest we too become the object of Jesus' wrath, not because we are too religious, but because we are falsely and fruitlessly religious. Well, it's now the Monday of Passover week. The previous afternoon has seen Jesus entering Jerusalem, riding on a colt of a donkey, As we saw, that was a prophetic sign in which Jesus was actively, visibly fulfilling the messianic prophecy of Zechariah 9.9, and in his triumphal procession amidst the throng of pilgrims who shouted his praise and announced 
the coming messianic kingdom. The joy of the triumphal entry was short-lived, however, because upon entering into the holy city, Jesus immediately ascended into the temple where the events of that day reached a somewhat jarring anticlimax. Chapter 11 and verse 11 says this, And he entered Jerusalem and went to the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Jesus entered Jerusalem amidst all of the proverbial fireworks. Hundreds, thousands of Galilean pilgrims are hailing him as the coming messianic king. And he goes up into the temple, the pinnacle of Old Testament Jerusalem, or Old Testament Judaism rather, and nothing happens. There's no fireworks, there's no speeches, there's no coronation, there's just nothing. Mark says that he just looked around at everything, he observed what was going on, and then he turned around and he went back where he'd come from, namely Bethany, where he was to spend the next four or five nights of that Passover week. But as we proceed into verse 12, we see that something did happen when Jesus went into the temple that day. When Jesus observed the temple and its proceedings, evidently he did not like what he saw. I think that he went home that first night seething with a holy anger, because the next day, Jesus' wrath is going to be unleashed. First, against a recognized symbol of the temple, the fig tree, and then against the temple itself. That's the context for the strange event which occurs next. Verse 12, on the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Now it'll be helpful if we know a little something about fig trees, which were common throughout Israel, but are not so much common here. The fig harvest occurs from mid-August to mid-October, after which the branches sprout small buds that then remain on the branches throughout the winter. In the early spring, these buds swell into green figs, and shortly thereafter, the leaves begin to sprout. In other words, a fig tree produces figs, although unripe, before it produces leaves. Therefore, if someone, like Jesus, found a fig tree in full foliage, one would also expect to find it full of unripe figs, what the Hebrews called pagim. And he would expect to find those figs in various stages of development. Now, these unripe figs could be and often were eaten by locals in the spring. And so, on this particular April morning, as Jesus traveled the two miles from Bethany into Jerusalem, being hungry and seeing a fig tree in full leaf, Jesus had every right to expect that it would be loaded with these unripe figs, which, though unripe, were still edible. But it wasn't. What Jesus finds is a fig tree 
that from a distance appears to be completely healthy, but upon closer inspection is utterly unfruitful. And so Jesus curses it. Why? Is Jesus throwing a temper tantrum because he got hangry and he couldn't find any food? I mean, that, that seriously is the way some commentators have taken this passage, and they therefore have decided that this whole episode is out of character with Jesus and therefore didn't really happen. But that makes little sense when we remember that Jesus was able to resist the temptation to turn stones into bread when he'd been fasting for 40 consecutive days. In other words, the picture of Jesus that we get in the Gospels is one who is master of his hunger rather than the other way around. So rather, if we understand the context in which this event occurred, we can see that the fruitless fig tree is a picture of the fruitless temple. In verse 11, Jesus observed everything that was transpiring in the Jerusalem temple. And what did he see? What did he see on that day when he went up to the temple and looked around? He saw a house of prayer that had been turned into a den of thieves. He saw a temple which had all the appearance of religious activity, but was inwardly dead and materialistic. He saw, in other words, a barren tree that was bearing no fruit. And when we understand that throughout the Old Testament, the prophets often used the fig tree as a symbol of God's judgment upon Israel. I mean, I found references in Isaiah, Jeremiah, Hosea, Joel, Micah, and even into Luke that use the fig tree as a symbol for Israel. Then it all begins to make sense. Jesus is using the fruitless fig tree as an acted parable. It's a dramatized prophecy for what he will do when he arrives in the fruitless temple. Not only will he cleanse the temple, he's going to curse it. And it's going to wither up and die from the roots, just like this fig tree. Verse, Verse 15. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. The the setting of this dramatic scene requires a little bit of explanation. The temple in Jesus' day was an absolutely enormous complex that was still under construction that had begun more than 50 years ago under the reign and the direction of Herod the Great. Herod had undertaken um, around 20 B.C. to greatly expand and improve the existing temple structure, which had been completed in 516 B.C. under the direction of Zerubbabel. You remember that Solomon's temple, the very first temple, had been destroyed by the Babylonians 70 years earlier. 
Now, the temple complex, Herod's temple, consisted of five main divisions as you work from the outside in. Okay? The first and largest division was known as the Court of the Gentiles. And this was an open-air rectangle that measured about 500 yards long and 325 yards wide. And it enclosed, or was enclosed rather, by a portico or a porch, a colonnade, all around that was supported by columns that rose 30 to 40 feet in the air. Then the second division, enclosed within the court of the Gentiles, was the court of the women. And this is where the women of Israel could gather to worship and pray. Further in, the third division was the court of Israel, where all circumcised Jewish males could enter. Then there was the court of the priests. Now the court of the priests was the location of the bronze altar, where the sacrifices were made, the bronze laver, and only Levitical priests could enter into that fourth division. Finally, there was the sanctuary itself, which was spectacular. The sanctuary measured 50 meters wide at the entrance and 50 meters tall. It faced east and was constructed of marble trimmed with gold, which gleamed in the rising sun. In the sanctuary was the holy place, where stood the golden lampstand, the golden table of showbread, and the golden altar of incense. And then in front of that golden altar of incense, there was an enormously thick veil, behind which was the Holy of Holies, where once in Solomon's temple, the Ark of the Covenant had stood before it was lost to history in the Babylonian invasion. That is, before, as all moviegoers know, it was discovered by Indiana Jones and stolen by the Nazis and is now locked in the deep recesses of a government warehouse. Now, the location of verses 15 to 19 is that outer court. It's the court of the Gentiles. It was an enormous open-air space surrounded by colonnades, which was the setting for the market activities which drew Jesus' wrath. During the week of Passover, the crowds which would enter into and pass through the courts of the Gentiles almost defy belief. According to the Jewish historian Josephus, in the year A.D. 66, so that's about 36 years after these events in Mark 11, some 200 and catch this, 255,600 lambs were sacrificed during the week of Passover. And Josephus says that the parties that would bring those Passover lambs consisted of no less than 10 individuals, sometimes as many as 20. In other words, individuals didn't bring Passover lambs, families did. He then calculates by simply taking the number of lambs sacrificed and multiplying by the lower end average of 10 people per family that the population of Jerusalem during the week of Passover was somewhere in the neighborhood of 2.7 million people. That should give you some idea of the swarm of activity that is taking place in the temple complex that Monday morning when Jesus arrives. But, it's not the number of people in the temple court that disturbs Jesus. It was the feel 
of the place. It was the atmosphere. It was the absence of reverent worship and prayer as the people prepared to offer their sacrifices. Instead, what he found was the hustle and bustle of a Middle Eastern bazaar. Money was being exchanged because the Roman currency had images on it that could not be taken into the temple to pay the half-shekel temple tax. Everywhere you turned, under every colonnade, lambs and pigeons were being sold, the prices of which were probably being loudly negotiated. Wine and oil and salt, all of which were necessary for the offering of the sacrifices, were also being hawked. And furthermore, although it was specifically expressly forbidden in the Mishnah, there's evidence to suggest that the Temple Mount had become kind of a byway for people wanting to get from one end of Jerusalem to the other without having to walk all of the way around. So there were people just passing through like a highway through the holy place. And all of this activity, all of this commerce was overseen by the Sadducees and created for them an enormous profit. Now, all of this was transpiring when Jesus first entered the temple and inspected everything that previous afternoon. But he hadn't done anything about it then. He simply turned around and went back to Bethany. But this Monday morning was different. Now Jesus had come to act. Filled with righteous wrath and a zeal for the glory of God, Jesus begins to do the unthinkable. Kent Hughes in his commentary on Mark reminds us that we ought not let our familiarity with the story dull our amazement at Jesus' actions. Listen to what he says. Have you ever seen a table flipped over? This is a violent act. And to top it off, we see Jesus halting the traffic of those who were using the court of Gentiles as a shortcut, for he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. So much for the one-sided, gentle Jesus, meek and mild. End quote. So I want you just to picture what's transpiring. Try to see it anew this morning. And and let the force of Jesus' anger convict you. Jesus' voice is raised in a holy rage. Coins scatter everywhere as he flips over the tables. Pigeon feathers fly up as he pushes over the seats of the sellers, likely with the people still sitting on them. Chaos ensued as he physically restrains those who are cutting through the temple courts. It is impossible to overstate how startling, how violent, how revolutionary this act was, not to mention how dangerous. This is a direct assault upon the most powerful people in Jerusalem. And we, as we see in verse 18, They want nothing more than to destroy Jesus, but they can't. Not yet, not openly. They fear him and they fear the crowds who are astonished at his teaching. So two questions I want to answer from this event. What is it that has Jesus so hot? And what is the ultimate effect of his actions? What is he 
ultimately doing in the temple? Well, the answer to the first question is given, I think, in Jesus' statement in verse 17. Is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers? See, Jesus isn't angry that animals are being bought and sold. He knows that that is necessary to fulfill the Passover requirements. He's not angry that money is being exchanged. He knows that they can't bring the Roman currency with its images into the temple. I don't even think the issue is primarily the exchange rate that the people were being charged, which we're told is a little over 4%. It was standard. It was set. Although extortion may be in view in Jesus' accusation that they've turned this house of prayer into a den of thieves. No, I think the primary reason for Jesus' anger is that, by and large, they had forgotten the very purpose for which the temple existed. Instead of the the noise of reverent worship and prayer, what Jesus hears is, is the bustle and the noise of commerce. And for what purpose? To fulfill their legal, religious obligations during Passover. The temple had turned into a business. It had turned into a religious machine. It was just pumping out meaningless sacrifices and fulfilling meaningless rituals. There was no heart. There was no prayer. There was no worship. There was only duty. If the leaders or even the majority of the people had cared about the worship of God, they wouldn't have allowed this irreverent bustle of activity to be located there in the house of prayer. And this is why Jesus was filled with so much wrath. The fig tree of Israel had become fruitless. Although it was covered in leaves, remember, 2.7 million people, 255,000 lambs being sacrificed that week, it's full of leaves, yet there's no fruit. The temple is just a religious machine churning out empty ritual. And in answer to the second question, what is the ultimate effect of Jesus' actions, Well, traditionally, this event is known. In fact, it probably says it there above this passage in your Bible. This is the cleansing of the temple. But I don't think that's what Jesus is doing. Cleansing gives the impression that Jesus is purifying or restoring the temple to its former state in order that it may continue to fulfill its intended purpose. That's not what Jesus is doing. Look at the parable of the, or the acted parable of the fig tree that bookends this passage before and after. Did Jesus cleanse the fig tree? No, he cursed it. He killed it. And since the fig tree is a picture of Israel and its temple, I think the best way to understand Jesus' actions is not as a cleansing of the temple, but as the cursing of the temple. The time for cleansing, the time for purification, the time of repentance is over. The opportunity for fruitfulness is past. From now on, the temple will wither away from the roots and die until it ultimately is cut down and destroyed in the fire. 
And I think that's exactly what Jesus alludes to two chapters later in Mark 13, 2, when he's walking out of the temple that final time on the day before his betrayal, and his disciples point out to him, Lord, look at the beautiful stones. Look at the beautiful buildings. Aren't you in awe of the beauty of this place? And Jesus says, says to them, do you see these great buildings? I tell you, there will not be left one stone upon another. In Matthew's gospel, just prior to Jesus making that pronouncement of destruction upon the temple, we read this. It says that he laments over Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Your house is left to you desolate. There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. That sounds to me like a fig tree cursed and withered from the roots up. Then in Matthew or Mark 15:38 at the death of Christ the veil of the temple that separated the the people from the holy place is torn in two from top to bottom symbolizing that the way to God is now open through the sacrificial death of Christ therefore the temple and all that it stands for is fulfilled in the death of Jesus Christ the Passover lamb and this building now and all of its strictures and all of its rituals that go along with it and take place within it are now obsolete for the believer there's no purpose for it anymore now that the true temple has come, that is Jesus. There's no purpose in these meaningless sacrifices anymore now that the true sacrifice has come, that is Christ. Jesus is not cleansing the temple for future use. He is cursing it and condemning it to be torn down one stone from the next. Well, in AD 70, 40 years later, Jesus' prophecy was fulfilled. As the Roman general Titus and his Roman legions tore the temple to the ground and destroyed the holy city. What should we take from this? There is a grave danger in a faith that does not bear fruit and in a religion that is nothing but empty ritual. How many churches are filled with people, yet there is no fruit. How many churches look like this fig tree that from a distance appears healthy? There's all of these ministries, all of these activities, all of these people, but when you come upon it and inspect it more closely, it's barren. There's no fruit. What will Jesus do to fruitless churches? The same thing he did to the fruitless temple. Curses it. Verse 20. And they passed by, or as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to them, or said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. 
Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. So on the way out of town that evening, the disciples walk past the withered tree again and they see that it's, it's dead from the roots up. The curse that Jesus pronounced on the fig tree was not empty words and neither will be the curse that he pronounced on the temple. And neither is the curse that he pronounces on fruitless churches today. Just go to Revelation 2 and 3, and you will see the way he addresses fruitless churches in Asia Minor. Now, I pondered at the connection between verses 22 and 25 and the verses which came immediately prior, because at first glance, they appeared to me to be rather disconnected. In fact, all of the sayings in verses 22 to 25 occur in different contexts in the other Gospels. But upon further inspection, I do think that there's a connection. And here's what it is. I think verses 22 to 25 describe the kind of fruit that was missing from the temple. And the kind of fruit that Jesus expects to be present in his disciples and in the churches that they will form. In particular there are two fruits that Jesus mentions as essential to true religion. So here's what we're doing. We're looking at verses 22 to 25 as we close this morning. We're seeing how these two fruits were absolutely missing from the Jerusalem temple. And we're examining whether those two fruits are present in our church and in our lives Because when Jesus thought about fruitfulness, this is where his mind immediately went. What does a fruitful church look like? What does a fruitful Christian look like? Number one, they bear the fruit of faithful prayer. This was the central point of Jesus' condemnation of the temple, wasn't it? Is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer? For all the nations, but you have made it into a den of thieves. See, the temple was full of business. It was full of busyness, but there was no prayer. The court of the Gentiles was not designed to be a marketplace. It was designed to be a place where the faithful of every nation could cry out to God in believing prayer. Not just any kind of prayer, Jesus specifies, not formal prayer, not external prayer, not prayer that just multiplies words but emerges from a heart that is dead and fruitless. No, the kind of prayer that Jesus has in mind are not the empty, weak, facile prayers that are so often uttered in churches. Faithful prayer, fervent prayer, powerful and effective prayer arises from hearts that believe that God can do anything. That he can remove a mountain of stone and cast it into the sea 
and that he can remove a heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. Prayer that asks great things of a great God and does not doubt in his power to do so. Prayer that believes that God can forgive any sin, save any sinner, heal any disease, restore any relationship, pay any debt. Does that kind of prayer characterize First Baptist Nixa, and does that kind of prayer characterize your own prayer life? Because that's fruitfulness as defined by the Lord. We've all been in those prayer meetings. I hate them. Where the people of God gather supposedly to pray, and what we end up having is a list of minor maladies that are afflicting the bodies of the church. I want to stand up and leave those kind of prayer meetings because I didn't come to pray primarily about people's gout. I didn't come to pray primarily about people's surgeries. I didn't come to pray primarily about people's colds. I came to pray about people's hearts. And you can tell a fruitful church by the focus of their prayers. If a church has an eternal perspective, their prayers will have an eternal perspective. And what will burn in the heart of that church as they gather together to pray is for the salvation of their family and their friends and their neighbors and their children. They will pray fervently for growth and faith and love and perseverance. When they pray for somebody who is in sickness, they will pray that God would heal that person, yes, but then they also pray that God would preserve that person in faith so that their faith would not fail at their physical malady, but rather that their faith would shine forth and that others would see the way that they endure this affliction in faith and they would be drawn to Jesus because evidently he's more to be desired than health. Do we pray like that? Do you pray like that? Because to the degree to which we do, we are an authentic church under the blessing of Christ. And to the degree to which we don't, we are a fruitless tree liable to his curse. The second fruit that Jesus mentions is that of a forgiving spirit, which again was absolutely absent from the Jerusalem temple. What does Mark say the leaders of the temple in Jerusalem wanted to do with Jesus? Are their hearts full of mercy, love, compassion, grace, faith? They're full of fear and hatred. They hate him. They want to destroy him. But they're not even strong enough to do that because they're afraid of the people. Jesus says no. Fruitful trees bear the fruit of forgiving spirits. A forgiving spirit is a vital, indispensable, necessary fruit of true faith such that, note this, God makes forgiveness of our sins dependent upon our forgiveness of others. Like, Don't just skip over that last verse, verse 25. You know why? 
Because that's not the only place Jesus says it. He says the same thing in Matthew 6. He says the same thing in Matthew 18. If your tree doesn't bear the fruit of forgiveness, then you're fruitless. And Jesus doesn't say fruitless trees. He curses them. Jesus made this connection in the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our debts as we forgive those who have sinned against us. A person who has been forgiven much loves much. A heart that has received grace gives grace. A heart that has known mercy gives mercy. And on the other hand, a heart that has never known the joy and the freedom of forgiveness, the removal of guilt and shame, tends towards bitterness and vengeance and malice, the very kind of hearts that were exhibited by the Pharisees, for instance, who tithed their mint and their dill and their cumin, but Jesus said had neglected the weightier measures of the law like justice and mercy and faithfulness. A hallmark of false religion, the kind of religion that Jesus hates, is a cold, bitter, unforgiving, and graceless spirit. A hallmark of true religion, the kind of religion that Jesus loves, is that it is warm and kind and forgiving and gracious. Now, what kind of church are we and what kind of tree Are you? Are we the barren fig tree, the barren temple? Or are we the fruitful tree that produces an abundance of fruit that nourishes the nations? Jesus doesn't hate religion, Jesus hates false religion. He curses it and he condemns it. Jesus doesn't hate organized institutional religion with its rules and rituals and doctrines and such. Jesus hates empty religion that has all of the trappings of authenticity. It has all the rules and all the rituals and all the doctrines and all the structures, but it has no fruit. Fruit like faithful prayer, fruit like forgiving spirits. That's the kind of religion that makes Jesus nauseous and causes him to spew it out of his mouth, Revelation 3.16. So in light of this passage, I want us to examine our own hearts and I want us to examine our own church because in the new covenant, we are the temple of the living God, the dwelling place of God by his Spirit. And we as individuals are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So the question is, what kind of temples are we? Are we a barren temple or are we a fruitful tree? When Jesus walks into our church, does he hear all of the clamor of noise and the bustle of meaningless activity, fruitless ministry? Or does he find faithful prayer happening and emerging from hearts that are full of forgiveness and grace? Hearts that love mercy. Because that's the mark of true religion, and that's the only kind of religion that Jesus loves.